Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like me, one simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating also makes this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that'll make this type of abuse worse. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma, and Rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need real support, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org. We'd love to see you in a session today. Two of the things that that the pornography addiction recovery world asks of a spouse of an addict or a victim of abuse would be number one, to not shame him. And number two, connect with him. So let's talk about why those two concepts in the context of abuse are super, super dangerous. I think it's all they've got. They can't think of anything else to say. Otherwise they'd be telling her get to safety and set boundaries, but they have to sort of pretend like it's not that big of a deal so that she'll stay because they're kind of worried about her leaving. That's their main concern because their main concern is him. Their main concern is not her. So at BTR, our main concern is her. Our main concern is, is she safe? Is she okay? Does she have her needs met? In the pornography addiction recovery world, the main concern of these professionals is him. And so they don't want his support system leaving him because then that could be bad for his addiction or something, right? It could be bad for him, but they never stop to think, is it good for her? We're speaking in generalities here. Like, are there some great, helpful addiction professionals? And the answer to that is yes. But I will say, if there are good CSATs or good sex addiction therapists out there, if they're actually really, really good and they do understand abuse, it has nothing to do with their sex addiction training. Right. Yes, I agree. It has to do with your abuse training. Kate and I, again, I'll put words in your mouth here, but we don't actually think that shame is even like a thing. Everybody feels shame. Some people feel shame and so they eat ice cream. Some people feel shame and they go for a run. Some people feel shame and they start crying. Shame is not the cause of someone looking at porn. And also you cannot, no matter how much you like, try to help someone and try to like, oh, this is going to be triggery for him. So I'm going to throw his mail away or whatever else people do because they're worried that it might trigger him and they don't want to activate his shame. So they're not going to tell him, I hate the color blue. You want to paint the room blue. I don't like it blue. If I say I don't like blue, is it going to shame you? So I don't want him to look at porn. Shame does not cause people to look at porn. It does not at all. It could be a fueler, but it does not cause, not cause. You have men who have feel no shame at all for watching porn. They did not grow up in religious culture. They did not grow up with any outside source saying, Ooh, porn is bad. And yet they are still having issues with it. 
Right. There are also men who, when they feel shame, they go talk to their wife and they say, man, this thing happened at work and I feel really stupid about it. They don't look at porn when they feel shame. Shame is a normal human emotion that should not be avoided at all costs or that we should be striving to like, oh my word, how can we reduce shame or whatever? It's something that happens that we need to be healthy about. And a healthy person deals with their shame in healthy ways. And an unhealthy person deals with their shame in unhealthy ways, but it's not the cause of anybody's behavior. Yes. Yes. And I understand where people have become a lot more obsessed about the whole shame thing. Like if you talk about the actual dictionary definition of shame, shame is not always bad. And however, if you're going off of Brene Brown's definition, which I still, I love her definition of it, then yes, shame is not good. But we kind of have to like find a, a balance between the two because shame isn't actually always bad because if you go by the dictionary definition, it, it can be healthy. It's not always that I am a bad person. Right. And even the bad person thing, right? Like, let's to put this in perspective, like Brene Brown is great and she's trying to help people deal with their own shame. She's not trying to help people deal with other people's shame, but some people actually are bad people. Yes. <laughs> we just need to acknowledge that, right? So like if someone continually hurts someone, they continually lie, they continually use porn, they continually cheat, then what are they? So to put that in perspective, if somebody skis every Saturday, they're a skier. If someone plays tennis twice a week, they are a tennis player. They play tennis, right? If someone runs track and they do baseball and all kinds of things, they're an athlete, right? You are what you choose to do. So if someone is continually lying, they're a liar. If someone is continually using porn, they're a porn user. And the scriptures have a word for this. The Bible and whatever scriptures you use, it is called wicked. Okay. And there is nowhere in the scriptures that I have ever seen that it says, and he was wicked because he felt shame. And so the people were super nice to him. And then this wicked person stopped being wicked because he, they said, no, you're not wicked. We love you. You're not a bad person. You're not a wicked person. Just these things you're doing are wicked. No, in the scriptures, it actually says they are a wicked person. They are wicked because they choose like evil things over and over again. Part of the like accountability and honesty and authenticity is for these men to actually recognize I technically really am a bad person. Yeah. That doesn't mean you will be forever if you don't want to be, but yeah, you are being a bad person. Like, like I don't see why it has to be stigmatized. Why is this word bad? I have to be such like, a, no, you can't say someone's a bad person. They're not, that's not who they are. And I'm like, what, what? So you're saying Hitler's not a bad person. I'm pretty sure we can call him a bad person or like Alfred Kinsey. I can call him a bad, disgusting person. Cause he is like he was, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Your behavior defines who you are. And it doesn't mean that they were always bad. And that doesn't mean that they can't change, but Right now, yeah, what they did, they are a bad person. Like, it's okay. And putting more stigma around it and be like, oh, we can't call them bad. That actually makes it worse and then fuels the problem. Right. There's a scripture that is in our faith that is from Alma 5. And those of you who are from our faith will know this scripture. It's Alma 525. And in our faith, people always say, 
well, he's a child of God, right? They say, this person is a child of God, so we need to love them. And they're not, a, like, instead of saying he's wicked, they say, well, he's a child of God. And I think, mm, okay, well, listen to the scripture. This is Alma 525. I say unto you, nay, except ye make our creator a liar from the beginning, or suppose that he is a liar from the beginning, you cannot suppose that such can have a place in the kingdom of heaven, but they shall be cast out for they are children of the kingdom of the devil. And there are other scriptures that say he is a child of hell. So I don't think at church it would be wise to walk around saying, oh, no, he's not a child of God. He's a child of hell. You know, that probably wouldn't be the wisest thing to say. But technically speaking, this is a wicked person who is chosen to do this. And until they recognize that their choices have created a wicked character, and they literally are a wicked person. And if they don't change, they are going to continue to make wicked choices. Then I don't really think they have the humility in order to be able to make those changes. And us telling them, no, you're good. You're not bad. You're fine. Minimizing their shame for them. Not that you'd be like, you're a child of hell, right? To their face or whatever. But in your mind, you can think, no, this is someone who's wicked. It never says anywhere in the scriptures. And they were wicked. And so we did not shame them. And we told them, no, you're not wicked. You're good. You're good. And, and then they stopped being wicked. In the scriptures over and over and over again, it says, and they were wicked. And then the advice, our loving heavenly father is cast them out, meaning create boundaries. And that is over and over. If you are looking for that in the scriptures, you will find it. It is all over the place. Yeah. I will add just in case, because I'm guessing some people might listen to this and be like, wait a minute, but I grew up thinking I was a bad kid and it didn't help me. I'm like, I, we're not talking about kids or anything like that. We are talking about grown men, grown people who do know better. We are not talking about children or anything like that. We're also talking about people who genuinely are making very sad decisions and hurting people. Children are just trying to figure stuff out. Children aren't wicked. Yeah, they're not. They're not bad. Whereas an adult with a developed brain who does know better, and you can always tell when they know better because do they do this in front of their boss? Do they do this in front of friends? Do they, and are they going to mistreat you like this in front of somebody else? And if the answer is no, he knows what he's doing. Unless he has some anger issue where he's angry literally to everyone, then I can be like, okay, maybe he really does legit have like some disorder or some angry anger problem. Otherwise, no, he's choosing to. And yes, it's okay that he's just be like, you are being a bad person right now. <laughs> abusive. You're abusive. There's a really good book on our books page. It's btr.org slash books. By the way, I apologize to everyone. I've toyed around with backslash and then forward slash, and I finally decided that I'm going to just use the word slash. So I hope that everyone understands that it's btr.org slash books. That's what I'm going to say from now on. It's called Character Disturbance by Dr. George Simon. This is not just some behaviors that are kind of troubling. This is like a whole system of this person's character where they're choosing to do these things that and that's what makes it so dangerous and so difficult. And I would also say it's not because of his childhood either. I used to even believe this, but the research actually does not show that. The research shows that when someone's abusive, it is because of entitlements, misogyny, it, their choices, and it is not because of their childhood. Right. Because we all know people who have had a really hard childhood who turn out to be really healthy adults. The response to that is, huh, 
Well, I know someone who went through a very similar experience to yours and they're not abusive to their wife. Exactly. And thankfully the anti-abuse industry is starting to recognize this and they're starting to teach this. It's not because he is an addict. It's not because he drank too much. It's not because he had childhood trauma. That's not why he's abusive. It is because of entitlements and misogyny. Yeah. Let's talk about connection as one of the things that the pornography addiction recovery world sees as the solution. And then next week, we're actually going to talk about victim blaming modalities and misogyny, what Kate was just talking about. So make sure you stay tuned for that next week. Let's finish up this episode with connection is the solution. So, so many people are like, oh, there's this crisis in your marriage, right? And the way to solve it is by connecting. Why is that super, super, super dangerous advice to give to a victim of abuse? The opposite of addiction is connection. That is all crap. Yeah, 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 exactly. That was a big TED talk. And I mean, okay, I'm not going to say it's like 100% crap. Like, yes, abusers, addicts, they do need connection, but connection is not going to heal them. Like that's not going to like fix them. It's not going to like, oh, if I connect with him more, he's not going to be abusive. That does not happen. Um, and I know they gave the example of the rats who were addicted to the, I think it was cocaine or something. And then they put them in the other rat park. And then the, suddenly the rat didn't want the cocaine anymore. Wow. He wanted to be with other rats. And it's like, you're talking about a rat who didn't have childhood trauma, who didn't have whatever, like that doesn't happen in reality. <laughs> if it did, most of our husbands would not be abusive because we've given them all the connection and attachment and love in the world. And it doesn't work. Right. No, the opposite of addiction is not connection. You cannot connect a person out of being an addict. And I think that for the addict, if they actually could stop using that drug, if stop using porn completely, and if they felt negative emotions of any type or whatever, they actually would connect with someone and be vulnerable and be real. They wouldn't be an addict. I mean, that's the healthy thing to do. So for them to connect would be the opposite of using the drug. But the way that victims interpret that is, oh, I need to connect with him more. And they cannot do that. So they have to set boundaries, which then the addict might say, well, she set these boundaries so I can't connect with her. And they don't even know how to connect. Yeah. It's not even what wives have even interpreted. It's literally what the guy in the TED talk is said. Oh, you know, he like gave some example of like helping an addict and wiping the sweat off of his brow and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh yeah. He made it seem like, oh, you just got to be there for them and, and help them through this. And it's like, and you know what? Hey, who knows? Maybe that does work for maybe a heroin addict. I don't think so, but let's just say maybe it does. But that does not work with sex addiction. It doesn't. Because sex addiction is a whole other beast. It is like 10 times worse than any other addiction. Right. But I mean, I've never had a heroin addict in my life. So correct me if I'm wrong here, moms of heroin addicts. But I can imagine that they've tried the same thing, right? I, I imagine that a mom might be like, I love you. I care about you. I'm here for you, you know, and you can live in my home and you can eat my food. And, and the kid just keeps doing heroin. So I'm thinking like if the TED Talk guy, if he would have said addicts need to learn how to connect and until they completely stop using their drug, people who try to connect with them won't be able to, that would have been more accurate. Yes. 
And that would have been much better. Instead, that's not what he, <laughs> sadly. No, and it's not the way it was. And he literally said it, but also it wasn't the way it was interpreted at all. Oh, yeah. Everyone's like, oh, I got to connect more with my husband. No, no. I'm going to take a break here for just a second to talk about my book, Trauma Mama, Husband. Before we get back to the conversation, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there, but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue. Or they try to quote unquote treat the victim and the abuser in the same setting. That's unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. You can find it on our books page, btr.org books. Our books page has a curated list of all the books we recommend. My book, Trauma Mama Husband Drama, is a picture book. It's the easiest way to explain it to someone who might not understand. But it's also just a good reference for you because of the emotional illustrations and infographics at the back. When you go to our books page and click on any of the books, it will take you directly to Amazon and you can put your books in your Amazon cart. After you've purchased Trauma Mama Husband Drama, please remember to circle back around to Amazon and write a verified purchase review along with a five-star rating. You can do it anonymously. You can also choose an alias on Apple Podcasts to do the podcast rating anonymously. This helps isolated women find us because even if they don't purchase the book, it will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Now back to our conversation. The guy's in the river. The river is raging. You're like, oh, that's a bummer. You don't stand by the shore. You don't give him a a tree limb. You just go home, do your thing, go on a walk with a friend, watch Netflix, whatever you're going to do. If he shows up at your house, super wet, he got himself out of the river and he's there you don't even need to get him a towel. You don't even need to get up off the couch, right? He's got to figure out where the towels are. He's got to figure out, you know, what's going on. He needs to get himself dinner. At that point, if he says, hey, I made a meal for you. I would love it if you came in and shared this meal with me. Then maybe you get off the couch and go say, okay. When he walks in that door, you're not like, oh, I'm going to make a meal for you. The, the towels are over here. Like he had to pull himself out of the river. He had to hike back to your house. He had to get himself ready. He had to make his own meal. And at that point you might consider, Hmm, I wonder if he's safe enough to share a meal with because he's exhibited all of the work that it would take in order to be safe enough to connect with. Because the problem with abusers is they are not safe to connect with. And the more you try to connect with them, the more abused you get. Cause they just usually manipulate it. Exactly. One of the books on our books page is How to Kill a Narcissist. And in that book, it has a super interesting theory. And it's that they don't actually feel shame at all, but they use shame as a way to activate your shame to make you feel bad or guilty or in order to manipulate you. And so these victims who are like, oh, I don't want to shame him. They're just using that as like, this is so fun. I can use this shame word, wrap her up in circles. But they actually don't feel any shame at all. And the problem isn't their overwhelming shame. It's their lack of shame completely. But of course, to other people, they have to act like they have shame. Otherwise, they would just seem like monsters. That book was really interesting to like shift my focus from thinking, oh, they feel shame to like some of these guys don't feel any shame at all. 
So the connection issue for a victim is if anyone suggests or says that, hey, they need to connect more, you always need to have in the front of your mind and in the back of your mind and in every part of your mind, I cannot connect with someone who is not safe and he is not shown or exhibited safe behaviors. And so this connecting is impossible at this point. And you need to keep that in mind and you need to keep thinking that and hold those boundaries until you see all of those healthy behaviors. You sit on that couch and you watch Netflix (laughs) until you see all of those things. And then it might be safe for you to stand up and have a meal with him, but only, only if he makes it. Yeah. And I think sometimes wives feel like, oh, but he was in this raging river and it must've been so hard. And you got to remind yourself, he jumped in that raging river for whatever reason. His choices led him there. And so if he does show up at the door, one way you might notice that he is safe is if he comes in, he wants to tell you, oh, I'm so glad to see you. And it's more vulnerable about his experience versus walks in the door. I need a towel. I need a towel and come rescue me. Oh, I need to be pampered. Mm-hmm. Where's dinner? Where's dinner? Why isn't dinner on the table? I can't believe that I was out there struggling for my life and you did not make dinner. Yeah. They instantly walk in. They're like, I'm entitled to stuff. Give me stuff. <laughs> we're going to pause this conversation today and we're going to continue it next week when we're talking about victim blaming modalities and misogyny and how that all ties in. Kate has done a ton of research and I'm really excited to talk to her about that. So stay tuned for next week. If this podcast was helpful to you, please help us reach other women by pushing that follow or subscribe button and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you for helping get the word out. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on support the BTR podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.